Hello, Ryerson. It's Friday, February 7th, and this is Blue and Gold. For the Ryersonian, I'm your host, Latoya Powell. And I'm your host, Dan Drigo. Last week, we learned what Ryerson University's decision to terminate the RSU's agreement meant for students. Since then, we've learned that the RSU Audit Committee found $99,477 in expenses that they couldn't verify the legitimacy of. Business editor Katie Swires will give us an update on the status of the RSU and new student government being formed. Happy Black History Month! February marks an important month in Canada and around the world as we honor the legacies of Black people in both past and present. Today on Blue and Gold, we honor former NBA All-Star Kobe Bryant. Just a few weeks ago, Kobe and his 13-year-old daughter, Gianna, tragically died in a helicopter accident in Calabasas, California. We will be speaking with Ryersonian sports editor, Adriel Smiley, who will tell us about his experience dealing with the loss of Kobe. Katie Swires is a business editor at the Ryersonian and has been covering the ongoing tensions between the RSU and Ryerson University over the past couple of weeks. Ryerson terminated their agreement with the RSU on January 24th. Katie is here today to share more updates regarding the final audit that Ryerson requested in January of 2019. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So Katie, you know I have to start this by asking you what's going on with the RSU after Ryerson decided to terminate the agreement. Oh boy. To be honest, I don't think anyone involved fully knows what's going on. It's uh, been a process, but um, yeah, so the from the RSU's point of view, they were elected to represent the students. Uh, Vanessa Henry, the president, said so at the last semi-annual general meeting, which was on Monday, Feb 3rd, that basically like their duties to the students, they were elected to represent the students and they will continue to do so in their capacity. Um, so, yeah, they launched a lawsuit um, last week against Ryerson. Uh, they're suing for $2.7 million, and they want their student fees released. It's basically like Ryerson University is telling the RSU, you are no longer a thing, and RSU is very much saying, you don't have the power to say that we represent students, and you cannot get out of the contract just like that. So it's a it's a very messy breakup. I've heard it called a divorce. Fair enough. <laughs> and what about the elections that are happening with the RSU? Yeah, so um, the RSU is going forward with their general elections uh, for 2020. The issue is, though, because they are not supported by the university anymore. Typically, um, RSU elections, you can vote through your RAMS portal. So they're supported in that way. That is no longer the case. Also, like elections, it costs money. You have to have a chief returning officer. You have to have a way of counting ballots. You have to have a place to be able to have the election and for students to be able to vote because they can no longer do it digitally since the university does not consider them the official student union anymore. So my understanding and what was brought up at the SAGM uh, is what they're going to do going forward is they're going back to paper ballots. It's most likely going to take place in the student campus center because that building is not owned by Ryerson and therefore um, the RSU can still be in that space and use it. I mean, I think there are a lot of details that are up in the air and some confusion. Like they said at Monday's SAGM that there was not a chief returning officer at that time because one had quit. 
I found out today that there is, in fact, now a CRO. So that means they can go forward with the election because last year it was pushed back in part because there was no CRO and also because of the whole credit card scandal. Mm -hmm. So does this mean that they'll be the student's voice, essentially? My understanding and um, what Vanessa Henry, the president, has been saying publicly is they still view themselves as the student's voice. They were elected by the student to represent students. The confusing thing is at the same time that RSU is going forward with this election, which they say in the statement of claim of their lawsuit that they are in danger of not being able to run due to the fact that they aren't don't have their funds released by the university. While they're going ahead with this, Ryerson is actively pushing ahead to create a mechanism for reforming a new student government. So it's very much two different parties with two very separate ideas of what's happening and two different agendas. So as far as Ryerson is concerned, and I have not seen a public statement that they acknowledged the lawsuit or the fact that RSU disputes the fact that they have terminated the operating agreement. Ryerson is kind of going forward with like, you are no longer the official student union. We need a new student union. We're going to for- help form one. Okay. And so to form this new student union, what do you think would be the guidelines for it? I, I mean, those details are kind of still being figured out, I think. So it has been a pretty quick turnaround from on Ryerson's part between officially terminating their operating agreement, which links the two organizations. And it's always important to remember that despite the fact they had an operating agreement, that the RSU is an independent organization from Ryerson. But since they made that move on January 24th, they've really very quickly pushed this ahead. There have been out. If you look into your email, there have been quite a few emails from your vice provost students, Jen McMillan, outlining, okay, here are the next steps for student government. And they did announce the names this week. So I believe it is Daniel Lee, Julia Spanwulo, uh, Katie Park, and uh, a recent graduate, which is Michelle Park. So if you kind of look at those names, like Daniel Lee's been involved with like student government and the RSU quite extensively for a very long time. But um, Sharina Harris and I, who Sharina is like the Ryersonian, I should think most of student campus media go to for what's happening with the RSU. So she looked it up yesterday. I did, too. And most of these names have been involved with the Senate. So what at least I don't know at this time is how like the university went about selecting these people because I didn't see like a nomination period and it is only like a small number of students that are like helping to facilitate a very big process. So it's just been, it's been a very quick turnaround between there's no more RSU as the official student union and we're just going to like make this new thing and it's been happening very quickly. So the amount of consultations that have been happening with students and like like what the back end process behind this. I think that's questions that everyone should be asking. One more question for you. It kind of goes along with what you were saying before, but do you know, do you have any idea of what the new dynamic will look like between the student union, the new student union and Ryerson University? Um, I don't know if I could fully speak to what that will look like and what their student government will look like, but like, all indicators from Ryerson University so far has been the RSU is no longer your student government, and this we're going to create a new working relationship, which means a new operating agreement, a completely new structure. And again, like the operating agreement was one of the sticky reasons 
that like the RSU and Ryerson parted ways Mm -hmm. was they didn't come to a conclusion on that and create a new one. I think it'll be interesting to see going forward. I think it's interesting the fact that we're in a position where there's an right students are in the position right now where they have one organization that in some ways still represents them like uh, the RSU runs the equity centers at this time and um, the university is actively forming another and what um, Vanessa Henry said at the SAGM is that like they'll keep going for as long as they can and if it turns out like if a referendum shows that Ryerson students want this new union well that is the will of the students and that's what student government is supposed to be. Yes well thank you so much for coming in I think you brought up a lot of really great concerns that students should continue pushing for answers for. If you want to learn more about what's going on with the RSU, you can check out ryersonian.ca and our print edition, which hits the shelves today. Kobe Bryant's death has devastated communities across the globe. Whether you followed his basketball career or admired his charitable works, the Black Mamba had an undeniable grasp on the world. For me, what I really was inspired by was his mentality, his mindset towards basketball, towards life, of just never quitting, outworking the next person, outworking yourself the previous day, and just never being satisfied with your own accomplishments. The impact that Kobe Bryant had on my life was his work ethic. And especially as a black man living in a society where they don't have your best interests, he always taught me to go hard in everything I do. To endure the hard work despite the pain, despite the challenges, um, despite how tough it may be at that moment, I think is something that um, not only inspired me about Kobe Bryant, but also something that adapted to be my own personal philosophy which enabled me to get through a lot of difficult times and kind of push through to work hard in the various silos of my life. Adriel Smiley is a sports editor at the Ryersonian and a lifelong Kobe fan. He has an op-ed out in the print edition today of the Ryersonian, which takes the reader through what his legacy meant to him growing up and the impact that Kobe's death had after the news broke last week. Adriel, thanks for coming on today. So just first and foremost, let's talk about Kobe the basketball player. Uh, in your upcoming op-ed piece, you touch on his 81-point game in Toronto. Uh, by the way, happy belated birthday. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> but in 2006, that fell on your 12th birthday. Um, I just want to describe the connection you feel to Kobe because of that night. He came into the game going 50-for-50, mm-hmm. 50 50, I believe, from the free throw line, mm-hmm. uh, which is a Lakers franchise record. Uh, just everything about that game, could you tell me a little bit more about I just remember the tier that he was on, the, like, and when I looked, when I looked back at the research, it was even better than I thought it was. But I remember at the time when I was like twelve years old or whatever, I felt like he was scoring. I felt like he already scored eighty points every game. It already felt like that. So him going into that game, it was just like a normal game. The Raptors weren't good. The Lakers weren't good. But like two of my favorite teams playing each other. But I, I just remember how good he was playing like already up to that point. And then I missed the game. Woke up the next morning, saw the highlights, and everyone's like eighty-one points. And I was like, I'm a huge Kobe fan, so. That was perfect for me. I went to school bragging, like, I told you he's the best. Like, I knew it. So that was, like, just amazing. amazing that, I guess validation. It was perfect validation. And because it was against the Raptors, more people saw the game than usually would. So even people who weren't Raptors fans were like, oh, I, I heard about that game. It was a big game. And I hadn't seen it, but I knew how big the game was. So 
I'm letting them know this guy's the truth. Of course, it's up there with Wilt's 100-point game, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So just talking about your perception of Kobe before the milestone mm-hmm. compared to him hitting 81, you finding about, out about it the next day, how did that change your perception of him? He, he was, like, untouchable after that. I thought he was – because the, the Wilt stat has been around the NBA for a very long time, and, like, the – the record before the 81 was, I think, 73, which is also Wilt. And then the other time the 70's been done, it's like, I think it's five times, and Wilt has it three of the five times. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a thing that no one would ever even get close to the to the 100. So him even getting to 81 was like, he obviously he's incredible. He had it, and he hadn't won with Shaq yet, so that was a huge thing. They were like, oh, can he win with Shaq? But bring, making, like, this is probably the only time where you can be the second best at something, and that's history on its own. So this was kind of saying, oh, this, this guy will live forever. doesn't matter what he does after this. This is something that no one thought could happen. So it kind of made him, like, you know, untouchable after that. And we talk about Kobe having GOAT status. Anytime you throw something like a paper ball in a garbage mm-hmm. bin, you yeah. say Kobe, right? We talk about then Wilt, GOAT mm-hmm. status, Bill Russell. We talk about Jordan. We talk about mm-hmm. LeBron, obviously. How does Kobe fit into that definition of being a part of those greats? I would I would put Kobe ahead of those just because I think Kobe probably has the most rabid fans of anyone. Kobe, if you compare him like a, a musician, he'd be like Justin Bieber or Taylor Swift or Kanye or someone like that, who their fans are just nuts for him. So Kobe having Kobe had those fans just because of his unique kind of entry into the NBA, just being a high school player and coming from Italy and his whole background. But for him to, that 81-point game kind of cemented it and that run that he had of all those 50-point games and 40-point games. So to have that huge fan base already just because they like kind of your mentality and how you are, and then you perform to, you know, make that feel, like, relevant for the rest of them, that was, that's just, yeah, it's kind of a validation because usually there's a lot of times when you root for someone, whether it's a player or a team or anyone you're rooting for, and they don't always exceed your expectations, you know. Mm-hmm. You may, they may do stuff that you're happy for them, but he exceeded even expectations of the most rabid fans, so that was incredible. If we want to talk about his on-court presence, which really gave him that GOAT status, what was most notable about as soon as he stepped onto that hardwood floor? Yo, it was like his heart was made out of something else, and everyone else's heart was made out of. That's that's really what it felt like. Like We could all hold a gallon of oxygen in our tank, he could hold two, because he was just like, on defense, he was relentless, on offense, it... it, it it's funny, he seemed, like, tired, but not tired all at the same time, if that makes any sense. But he just had this determination on his face from the beginning of the game in every game. And, like, people say he was a crazy person, and that's probably part of why, but he had that kind of determination on his face from the second the ball was tipped. And it could be a preseason game in London that means nothing to anybody, but you, you could just tell he was trying harder than everybody else all the mm-hmm. time. He'd be going hard in the paint. He'd be going up hard for rebounds. Yeah. He'd get those foul calls. Mm-hmm. With all of that then uh, being apparent in his play, and obviously after retirement and obviously after death, we know him as one of the GOATs. How do you think he was viewed by the rest of the league during the height of his career? Oh, By his, by his peers, he was viewed very high. I think that's kind of what makes him the GOAT status even now. Like, you know, in any, in any profession, people from the outside can look at you very highly of what you do but for people inside your profession to speak so highly it's like someone like Kevin Hart which a lot of people in in acting say Kevin Hart's not the best actor but we see the work that he puts in Kobe was someone like that where other players were were had all these stories about Kobe's work ethic where I got to the gym at six and Kobe was already there sweating or I thought I could beat him doing this and he beat me doing that so I think like the the from the rest of the players they all saw the work ethic and for the best players in the world to say you're working harder than all of them kind of speaks to, you know, how seriously he took it. 
and just with the hard work that he uh, obviously popularized, Mamba mentality, mm-hmm. how did that come to fruition for him? Well, I remember when Mamba mentality starting was in 2008. That was He had won his first MVP, and at, when he won his first MVP, there was kind of this thing about he was the best player in the league, but because his team was bad, he had no chance of winning MVP. Mm-hmm. So winning MVP was a huge, a huge honor for him. Obviously, it's MVP, but of course. for him, it was, it was huge. And then in the Olympics in 08, which was the summer summer afterwards, um, that, they won the Olympic gold, but he was like the elder statesman on the team. That was a team that had LeBron, Dwayne Wade, Carmelo Anthony, and all the guys would end up being future Hall of Famers. But the rumor is that through that Olympic experience, they all saw his work ethic, you know, front and center. And then they all went to their respective teams and kind of shared that with the rest of the NBA. But that's 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 kind of where it started is all of those other stars, Dwight Howard, Jason Kidd, seeing Kobe, you know, up front and seeing his work, work ethic and, you know, them taking that with them for the rest of their careers. We talk about his legacy a lot. We talk about the legacy of the Black Mamba. What does that legacy mean to the basketball world? And then what does it mean to obviously not the basketball world? Because he's affected both spheres of life, really. I, th- I think it's just the hardware thing, like you said before. I think that's like what's probably going to last longer than even just people knowing who Kobe is, like hundreds and hundreds of years from now, he'll be some kind of synonym for hard work, I think. I think you saw that kind of in something he did after basketball with um, him winning the Oscar for the for the, mm-hmm. the movie he did. The short film. The short film and um, the book he wrote with his daughter. But like I, I think that's what it will be. The, the story I heard that kind of sticks out to me is, so he wrote his thing to basketball for the Players' Tribune, and then he turned the, his letter that he wrote into a short film. And they said that in the history of the Players' Tribune, his his letter was the only one that wasn't edited. Usually they have mm-hmm. the players kind of ghostwrite with someone or they have write down their thoughts, jot note style, and someone like writes it for them. They said that Kobe's was the only letter in the history of that whole publication that wasn't edited at all. So that kind of speaks to, like, imagine imagine Kobe going word after word, making sure it all fit together. So I think I think he took the hard work not only to basketball but outside, and then people who were not in the basketball world could see that in either him winning the Oscar, Oscar or the shows that he did and things like that. Given, uh, obviously, the impact that his death has had on the world in the past two weeks, uh, can you tell me a little bit how that impacted you yourself personally? Yeah, I, I honestly thought it wasn't real. I'm like, I'm lu- I come unlucky that it happened on Grammy night. Like, I'm a huge, huge music fan, so I'm, all, I'm always potential to the Grammy. So my friend had a Grammy party, actually, and that kind of helped, like, take my mind off of what was happening, but um, it was odd because it, the Grammys were in Staples Center, and even though there's all these Laker legends in Staples Center, they call that Kobe's house. So just to mm-hmm. every time they would do like a wide shot of some performance, it kind of remind me. So that was it. Was just like yeah, it was a lot to take in the, the just the first day because it's like again the, the Staples Center has had so many concerts, events, other legends from other sports. You know, Gretzky played all these things, and it's like they still call that Kobe's house. So. Just thinking of that, you know, he put 20 years into this into this career and all that work he put in for, you know, this city to be, people say that's his city and this huge arena to say that's his house. Just to see, I guess you see the fruition of his work, you know. Mm-hmm. After he was gone, people are, people are still taking, you know, his teachings to heart. And, you know, that's something that, there's so many people who are kind of more popular than Kobe or maybe you did more things on the philanthropic that, maybe helped the world more than Kobe did, but, you know, he really felt serious about this hard work thing, and you see that kind of, you know, around people after he died. Obviously, uh, moving to the league's response to his death, 
you have people like Jonas deactivating his Instagram and Twitter. Mm-hmm. You have LeBron uh, crying after getting uh, off the Lakers plane. You have people like Spencer Dinwiddie and Quinn Cook changing their numbers. Mm-hmm. How do you think we see the shift that professional athletes mm-hmm. play just even outside of basketball? basketball or even not even in basketball just the role that they play in modern society do you think we're going to see a shift i think i think we will because i think um that old school thought that charles berkeley had of like over oh, athletes not role models i don't think players really believe that anymore you know especially with social media there's there's players like zion who have been role models to kids since zion was 15 or 16 so it's like you know you see the impact you have on the world as an athlete you know well before you become a pro you know there's hundreds and hundreds of these kids in high school who have highlights on YouTube that have millions of views and all these other things. So I think that people will take that more more seriously, and especially because, you know, even if you don't feel like you are a role model, you have role models. There are people who you look up to, and you would, you know, aspire to be like those people you look up to so that someone couldn't do the same for you. So I think I think definitely it's going to be a huge change. And, and especially all, like, those young kids who followed Kobe, Kobe's, like, again, the perfect example of, like, he just chose to go that way. He he started playing when he was seventeen and as a pro, you know. And it's like most seventeen-year-olds now are juniors in high school, or you know, by, by the time he had played four seasons, people would be usually not even finishing a college. So for him to take like a profession that seriously at seventeen, and you know the effect that he has, I think that a lot a lot of players are definitely going to take that way way more serious. Thank you for coming on to talk about Kobe today. Uh, I really appreciate the conversation. Just wanted to give you a little plug as well, uh, just because Adriel is also the host of The Cool Table, which is a radio show dealing with the culture of music, uh, which is broadcasted by The Scope here at Ryerson. You can check that out at thescope at ryerson.ca, or even better, adrielsmiley.com. Thanks so much, Adriel. No worries. what we're following this week. Toronto police are looking for two individuals suspected of attacking a person on the Ryerson University campus on January 30th. The person who reported the incident said two individuals assaulted them and fled the area when they yelled for help. The assault reportedly took place in the area around 284 Victoria Street. Ryerson University has announced the names of the students who will form the committee to facilitate the election for a new student government structure. The names of the students are Daniel Lee, Julia Spanuolo, Katie Park, Zainab Bokyari, as well as recent Ryerson graduate Michelle Park. Ryerson's Public Affairs Office has not yet responded to a request for comment regarding how the students were selected and whether they will be compensated for their work. Sportsnet and Ryerson's Faculty of Communication and Design are teaming up. They want to bolster diversity and inclusion in sports media through Sportsnet Diversity and Gender Equity Initiative. This is a scholarship program that will start in the fall of 2020. The goal of the initiatives is to get students from diverse backgrounds to feel empowered to pursue careers in sports media. Sportsnet has allotted $100,000 to FCAT's sports media program and will provide four scholarships as well as year-round diversity workshops at Ryerson's Global Experience Sports Lab. That's all for this week's Blue and Gold. Thanks for listening. You can catch up with us next week for more of your community's top stories. Or you can check us out at ryersonian.ca for more in-depth coverage. Blue and Gold is a production of the Ryersonian and the Ryerson School of Journalism. 
Our hosts are Dan Drigo and LaToya Powell, with executive producing done by myself, Lauren Davis. Additional reporting done by Katie Swires. Our editor-in-chief is Talene Loschiavo. Managing editor, Isabel Kirkwood. Instructors, Peter Baker George and H.G. Watson. Graphics by Brent Smith. Special thanks to Angela Glover, Lindsay Hanna, Daniela Aleru, and Gary Gould. Music this week provided by We Star. I'm Lauren Davis. Thanks for listening.